Good morning, beloved. This is February 9th. We are a second installment in our class called The Reign of Life. And what we want to do today is on the handout C1, when we're thinking about an overview of Romans, we want to understand the author. But let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And as we read it, let's ask, be thinking about this question, what kind of man would write this, what he wrote? What is what he's writing? Tell us about him. So I'm going to let you answer that question after we read it, and then we're going to look at what his writings tell us about him, beginning with his conversion and testimonies in Acts. So who would read for us Romans 5, 1 through 11, just to, so we're anchoring ourselves in our study text. <coughs> Thanks, Frank. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have uh, now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, uh, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, uh, we have now re- received reconciliation. Great, thank you. What do you know about this man based on this text? What does he believe? What's important to him? Values? What's he experienced? What, let's make some observations together. Nate? He knows that we don't start as uh, neutral. Okay. So he knows that we are not naturally at peace with God. And then um, in verse 3, the translation says, uh, anyway, he knows that we are in trouble without what he, with the message that he's referring Good. How, how would he have classified himself and based on the latter part of the text? He would have seen himself as formerly an enemy of God. And what's the source and basis for his rejoicing now? He's a man, apparently he's got joy and rejoicing. What's the basis of that? He's forgiven. He's He's experienced reconciliation through the blood of Jesus. Uh, It looks like he's in a new status. What's his new status? What would be a word here? Words that describe his new status with God. Reconciled. Reconciled and justified. justified. And correspondingly, look at verse 1. At peace with God. Does that, mean he, he, that, does that mean he's a man, strictly speaking, who has nothing to prove, nothing to lose? And that equips him then to endure what? 
suffering. We're going to see, hopefully today, this guy suffered immensely for Jesus. But where is his ultimate confidence? Do these sufferings have a point? What are they doing? What are your sufferings doing in your life? It produces endurance. Producing endurance. Character. Which is perfecting character. Leading ultimately to hope. hope. Biblically, hope is... Somebody give us a synonym for hope. It's not the way we use it in English. Hope, Christian hope is... <coughs> trust. Trust, confident certainty. And his experience, what has he experienced in his heart that fuels that hope? Look at the end of that section there, the first five verses. What does he have in his heart? The love of God. Well, we could go on and on and on, but just these verses alone give us a glimpse of a man who's been radically transformed and um, has a lot to share with us. So, the handout, what do we know about Paul? You probably know that his conversion is recorded in Acts 9. This is someone who laid his coat at the feet of those who were stoning Stephen. He was a witness to Stephen's martyr. He was approving of it. (coughs) Excuse me. As you move through the book of Acts, towards the end of Acts, there are at least three specific times he recounts this. So that's pretty important for the readers to know. We're not going to read all of them, I think, because there's a lot of overlap. The uh, first one, Acts 22, is in Jerusalem before the Jews. Acts 24 is in Caesarea before Felix. And still in Caesarea before Agrippa. Let's look at Acts 26 because it includes his testimony and adds some other elements that I think are important as well, just to understand the man. So let's look at Acts 26. Who would read verses 1 through 23. Thank you, Radu. <coughs> so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand. And Incidentally, I may stop you midstream if I'm going to ask you all a question. So just be ready to be gone. All right. Okay, sorry. Uh, then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this I hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Uh, why, it, why, is it the, why, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So stop. Where does he begin? his apologia, his, his defense. Where does he begin it? How he grew up. What's public? He, he begins with a public testimony of what he was. So every testimony involves, here's what I was, here's what God did, did for me, here's what I became. Simple structure for a personal testimony. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you should have several different personal testimonies. The short version, right, standing in line with somebody at the supermarket if God should give you the opportunity. The longer version, sitting on a plane next to somebody if God should give you the opportunity. And a detailed version if somebody gives you opportunity to really unpack, here's how God changed me. I think Christians should have variations on their testimony. Nate? And he's also identifying with his audience. <laughs> he's talking to Caesar, he wouldn't start out, let me tell you about my history of the Pharisees. He's talking to someone who's very familiar with Jewish customs. Yes. And Paul is annexing the, the disagreement with what specific event here? The resurrection. And remember when he was in a mixed audience with Sadducees and Pharisees, and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees do, and he pulled that card out to save himself from a mob. Wait a minute, I believe in the resurrection. So in a sense, he divides the audience against themselves. <laughs> so is the, resur- the future resurrection of the body at the heart of the, Christian, of the Jewish faith? <laughs> yes, and it's, that's why it's at the heart of the Christian faith. So I'm on trial for the resurrection. Okay, good. Ready to continue. So we're down to verse, uh, is that nine? Yeah. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I am only locked up oh I I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in enraging fury against them. I persecute them even to foreign cities. Push pause. What does Paul have on his record? Is this bad? This is horrible. He's a murderer. Was he sincere? Oh, yes. So you can be sincerely mistaken. He was convinced this was the right thing to do. Before whom? God. You can be sincerely mistaken. But does this man live with a clear conscience before God? How do you account for that? He killed followers of Jesus. And yet now, how do you account for that? The freedom of the gospel. He really believed he was forgiven. He really trusted in the death of Christ to cover all the sins. Continue. <clears throat> Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of uh, sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's push pause. Okay, so what is Paul recounting here in slightly compressed compressed form? His what? What do we call it? The Damascus Road experience. Do you need one of those to be converted? 
No, why not, Dory? God works in many different ways. Yeah. He brings his people to himself in many different ways. This is not normative. It's simply describing what happened in his case. Do you think a Paul, a man like Paul, Saul, needed this kind of conversion to be radically transformed? Probably. Now, if you grew up in a, in a covenant home, yeah. you were exposed from the earliest of times you can remember to the love of Jesus, you may not need this kind of conversion. Paul did, apparently. But don't feel like you need to make this normative. What do you have in common with what Paul experienced, would you say, to know you had a bona fide conversion? Can you find any point of commonality that, yeah, I need to experience, I need to know <coughs> here's what we have in common? Well, the, the acknowledgement that you have sinned against God and that you are forgiven. Yeah. Experience of the grace of the gospel. So, what, is, um, what does he recount immediately? What, what does um, Jesus do? He, he gives him his life mission. It's breathtaking in its depth. Uh, I'm looking at verse 16. Rise, stand on your feet. Incidentally, it, earlier it says Paul arose and was baptized. He stood up and was baptized. I won't go down that bunny trail, but I'm guessing he was either a sprinkler or port, but I'm not going to go down that bunny trail. He said he stood up and was baptized. We won't get distracted by that. I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things you've seen um, me and to those to whom will appear to you delivering you from your people and the Gentiles to whom I am sending to open their eyes this is the heart of this mission opening eyes that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God what's another word that captures that turning? Repentance good here's conversion Satan, darkness, light, life, Jesus. There's a turning. He's appointed that he might uh, proclaim the gospel. They might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Probably definitive sanctification there. Sanctified, set apart from a life of darkness, slavery to Satan, a life of Jesus. Faith sets us apart and causes us to belong. But we'll get, we'll get to that a little bit more when we get into Romans. Okay, how much farther are we going? Right, do I keep uh, interrupting you? Great. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly visions, but declared first to those in Damascus that in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, <coughs> also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Thank you. So in spite of opposition, wherever he turns, you know the story, he's preaching what? The gospel. Where does he get his gospel? The Old Testament. I'm stating nothing but what the prophets and the law 
said, so he's rooting the message of Christ. Obviously, we get more clarity in the teaching of Christ in the New Testament. We get more clarity on it. But he's saying, <coughs> I'm not inventing anything here. If you, he could say to any Jew, if you knew your Bible, what I'm telling you is what the prophets and the law and Moses and the Psalms said was going to happen. And what's the heart of the gospel? It's about Jesus. He would be crucified and be raised on the third day. And who's the gospel for? Both Jew and Gentile. It's for the whole world. Okay? Isn't that a great passage? Okay. Let's move on. Anything else you want to say about what we've read? Let's look at a, a, a Philippians 3, 3 through 11, for a, <coughs> I'm sorry guys, a more autobiographical perspective on his conversion. Uh, Philippians 3, somebody read for us, 3 through 11. For we are the circumcision who worship by the, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, <coughs> the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thank you, Dory. What does he mean when he says confidence in the flesh? What, what is this? Paul's giving you his resume, right? So if he went to get a job at a synagogue, this is his resume. What, he's got a great resume, all this stuff about him. And what does he mean by confidence in the flesh? Confidence before, ultimately before God that he is acceptable, right? Everyone places their hope, their confidence in something, some reason for why God should accept them. <coughs> and that's what the litany Paul's going through here. And he says his conversion is a matter of losing all of that because it's ultimately rubbish, rubbish garbage. C-A-R-P C-A-R-P. C-C-R-A-P. Carp. In light of what? In light of what? 
If this is his righteousness, what does he learn to receive by faith? The righteousness of Christ. You're either trusting your righteousness or Christ. There's no other way to think about it. Well, I know Christians get confused. They think, Jesus died for me, but I have to add my part. And the million-dollar question we want to ask people who think that way is, if you think you need to add your part to what Jesus did, then what was lacking in the perfect righteousness of Jesus that you could add to it? That's the question. That's the question you need to ask Mormons, Catholics, and good church-going moralists. What is lacking in Christ's righteousness that you could possibly add to it? It was sufficient. It was enough. Okay. <coughs> Anything you want to say about this portion? Yes. Little louder. I don't think they can hear you over here. That's okay. Yes. Very good question. What did Paul have in mind that he wants to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings? Great question. Some of you take a shot at it. Rock? Well, if they persecute Christ, they'll persecute his followers. And he wanted to stand close enough to Christ that he would be treated the same way. Yep. Jesus promised and predicted they'll treat you the way they treated me. So the moment we identify with Jesus, there's a mark on our back. Right? Satan hates you. Satan wants to destroy you. And unbelievers, wittingly or unwittingly, want to do the same thing. And we'll see as we get through the, uh, for Peter's first epistle, chapter 2, Christ left us a pattern to follow in his steps, and that is to suffer with him. And that's Paul's life. Wherever he went, he was almost left for dead, virtually every city he evangelized. And what did he do? He got, got up, again. and he kept and doing it again. Why? He wanted to be conformed to the death of Jesus as it were. And we're going to see that his goal in life is to be raised from the dead. That's back in chapter 1. We'll get there when we get there. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Good. Okay, any other observations about this autobiographical part? Let's take another look at that. This from the perspective of his calling. Let's go to Galatians 1. It's neat how uh, interspersed through his epistles you get some, some glimpses into the... Uh, <laughs> the specific things that happened in his life as a part of his conversion. So we'll start in 1.11 and go through 2.10. Who would read that for us? It's one of his earliest epistles, incidentally. Okay, great. Alright, uh, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up, but not received from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, so 
that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia later and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. Stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. They praised God because of me. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders. For fear that I was running or had run my race in vain, and not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Jew. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we had in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, whatever they were, made no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and they recognized the grace of they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing eager to do. Thank you. What would you say is significant about what's going on in this this portion? What's basically Paul doing? What's he showing? Is he really an apostle? Look, he didn't walk the sea of walk the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. He was off being a <coughs> fanatical Pharisee then. So, and he wasn't he wasn't there when they replaced Judas. Is he really an apostle? That's that's really the question he's addressing here. How do we know he's really an apostle? He's called by Jesus. Jesus called him. Jesus appeared to him. Think there's any significance to the three years he spent in Arabia? What does that sound like? It sounds like the three years Jesus spent with his disciples, he's getting some makeup time with Jesus. I think Jesus taught him a lot. Maybe one-on-one. And then you have this intersection of, okay, I've been preaching, here are the apostles in Jerusalem, and oh, let's make sure we're on the same page. He knows he's on the same page. He wants to make sure they're all on the same page. Everything's good. I'm going to the Gentiles, Peter, you're going to the Jews, we're all good. That's kind of what's going on here. There's not a doubt of, uh, there's not an ounce of doubt in his own mind, uncertainty in his own mind. I love the way he puts it. Go back to verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, he, he believes in the doctrine of election. 
called him Mechel Malachim. He knows that God looked at him before he was born. God set him apart before he was born. He called me by his grace, and he revealed his son to me. And then he gave me a life's mission that I might preach to the, to the Gentiles. You have a life's mission. He set you apart before you were born. He called you by his grace. He's given you something significant to do. Do you know what it is? Any of you want to answer that question? Maybe if you're older, you can say, yeah, this is what God wanted me to do. Anybody? Hey, we've we got to be a room full of Christians who know what God's called them to do. And look, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I mean, what's the most primary thing you were called to do when you woke up this morning? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. <laughs> but is there something specific you're called to do? Anybody want to answer? Do we need a class on discovering spiritual gifts and identifying ministries? And certainly, at this season, you're like called to be a mother. Good. Yes. Good, and and you've been working through, haven't you? What, where's that going to land? I have these interests, these passions. Very good. Where does? Specifically, actually, uh, I study chemistry, and lately it's been so apparent just how like God is like the creator of the world, and I feel like the strongest scientists should be the strongest Christians because it's so like science does not disprove God. It's just how to explain it. So specifically, I feel like that's kind of what God wants us to do. Good, so God has put a passion in our sister's heart for science, right? He didn't give me that, because I'm, I'm terrible with science, music. You know, I, there's a lot of things I just couldn't do. Our sister has that. God gave it to her. So it's going to be exciting to see what God does with that passion 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. Very exciting. And it might change. It might change. Okay. Rock? I do believe he's called me to be a husband and a father and a grandfather. So, uh, I rejoice in that. And, uh, and I, think he, I feel like his, my calling is to uh, be a financial assistance to, to people. That you have a sense that you bring blessing to other people to help them think about their finances, their retirement, their states. That brings you joy to bless people that way. That's my work, and I think Wonderful. How early on in your life did you know that? Did you sort of get into that right, right out of the gate? No. I was uh, probably about 25, 28 or 30 or something like that. Wonderful. Excellent. Thank you. Great testimony. Was that a hand from Joan Cassidy? Yes. Um, share the love of Christ with all of these people from all of these nations that live in my building. Wonderful. It's like, you know, over 25 that I've identified. Different religions, share with people who are in need. Good. So I just 
Wonderful. Good. We, we will get totally sidetracked on the doctrine of calling, but it, there's some application here, isn't there? Very good. Let's move on to Paul's experience of the gospel itself. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, <coughs> 12 to 17. This uh, lands us in what's called the pastoral epistles. Not addressed to a church, but to some pastors. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. Who'd read that for us? I, I thank him who has, given, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I have... I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. <clears throat> and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The King of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So what is Paul saying about his experience and his conversion? How is it functioning now? It's not wasted. How is it functioning now? He's an example to all who would believe. And what's the example? Put it in your words. I'll start the sentence. It doesn't matter how bad you were, there's sufficient grace to save you. And I'm exhibit A. Could you get worse than a persecutor and a blasphemer? You couldn't get worse than me. This is the kind of sinner Jesus saves. So if you're a better person than that, there's abounding, if you're worse, there's abounding grace for you. It's all about grace, 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 grace. Yes? Chief of sinners. I don't think Paul sees himself in, in the day he's writing that as still a worse sinner than everybody else. It's, it's a foil. It's the way he categor, categorizes his entire life. Does he struggle with sin? Yes. But it's not like this becomes an excuse not to live righteously. How about... Existentially, how is this getting worked out in his life in terms of uh, pain, suffering, such? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians. Somebody read 2 Corinthians 1, 6 through 11. 2 Corinthians 1, 6 through 11. Good. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 1, 6 through 11. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is fully grounded, knowing that you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharing sharers of our comfort. But we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves and in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from such so great a peril of death 
and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And yet he will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, mm. so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Mm. Mm-hmm. Great call to prayer, isn't it? So let's think about Paul's thinking, the, the two-stage way he frames his suffering. He suffers, and what does God give him in the midst of his suffering? What's the word? God joins suffering with comfort. Comfort. Is that where it stops? No, Paul's life is a gate through which that comfort flows. And where does it go? To others who are suffering. He never wastes his sufferings. He never wastes his sorrows. His sorrows and sufferings is an opportunity, to, as far as other people go, to, to say or to do what? We're experiencing the same thing. Or you're experiencing the same as us. This is what we signed up for when we... Uh, decided to follow Jesus. And the comfort God gives is to overflow to others. So it's deeply relational. The body suffers together. Anybody else want to say more about that before we move on? Chapter 4, 7 to 15. Have a lady read for us at this point. 4, 7 to 15. We have this treasure in jars of clay power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's fine. More of the same? What is the purpose of identifying with the sufferings of Christ, being persecuted for Jesus? So that what shows up in the midst of those? The life of Jesus. And we want you to experience the life of Jesus. We'll die so that you can live. That's the way husbands should treat their wives. That's the way parents should care for their kids. That's the way we care for one another in the body. Serve one another. Paul's passion. Go to 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. And, you know, I'm just sort of choosing... The most obvious words. Okay, you got it, Terry. First Corinthians uh, 2, 1 through 5. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on, on God's power. Thank you, Terry. So put that in your own words. What is not the feature of Paul's public ministry? What is not the feature of it? Eloquency. Eloquency. 
the message is good. It's not the mode, it's the message. Now, we'll, we'll know, we know from the life of Paul that the lifestyle of the messenger is incredibly important. We'll, we'll get to that. But when he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus, Christ Jesus, him crucified, does that mean he didn't teach him anything else? What's, what do you mean by that? Where the priority is. This is the nexus. This is the priority. This is the heart of the message. Christ. That's my gospel. Christ. Not look at Jesus, the good man, be like Jesus, but Christ crucified for sinners. Christ risen from the dead to guarantee we'll live with him forever. That's what I determined to know among you. And he's going to have to deal with the super apostles in 2 Corinthians 15 who made it all about showy, flashiness, how many seats you could fill in the local theater, how eloquent they were, how put together they looked, etc., etc., all right, Paul's passion. What's his ambition? Now we'll go to Philippians 1. Back to Philippians 1. I kind of should have put that next to it so we didn't have to flip back and forth. But Philippians 1, 21 to 26, Paul's ambition. Lady, we have a lady to read this part. Thank you, Ruth. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thank you. So how many ambitions does he have? Does he have com- competing ambitions in his heart? Yeah. What's the number one desire of his heart? Be with Christ. To live as Christ. To die is gain. It's even better, right? That's his number one ambition. But what, what is competing with that? His ambition to minister to others. His desire to minister to other people. For your sake, I'm going to keep slugging it out in this awful place we call earth. For your sake, to see fruit in you, so, Je- so you can know Jesus better. He's setting aside the best thing, being with Christ. For the sake, this is a really other-centered man. And I think he has a sense that Jesus is going to call him home when he wants him, and until then, he's going to serve Jesus with his whole heart. Two ambitions. How many ambitions do we have in our hearts? Where does this come from? Must have spent a lot of time with Jesus. Must have seen Jesus change other people through his ministry. Ready? Something that struck me when you just said is it, it gave him great boldness knowing that. Meaning, like you said, if Christ wants him home, you know, he wasn't going to go take him until it was time, and therefore he could pursue whatever it was he was doing with great boldness. Yes. Tremendous confidence that what's ahead is the best. Therefore, I can spend and be spent for Jesus. So it's, it's really, I, I like this point. We might end on it. I, I really like it. It's very difficult to be spent for Jesus without confidence because you're going to be tempted to hold back. It's all out, isn't it? We've got nothing to lose, nothing to gain. The best is yet to come. Until I really believe that, I think I'm going to be protective preservative of my own soul. Joan Cathy, I'll give you the last word. Well, I just think about something from your sermon a few weeks ago about the confidence, and it's, it's 
practicing gives us the confidence. Good. Staying in the word is what I consider part of the practicing. Good. Is to, to know the word and then be able to use it at that time. That bolsters the confidence. Good. Wonderful. Wonderful. Knowing God's word and then the Holy Spirit is pleased to call that to mind, to bring that up when you need uh, the word in those particular times. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for the love you have for them, the love they have for you and for one another and for your word. Satisfy them with your word. Give them hope and strength and confidence and peace and joy and other-centeredness as a result of seeing you and your abounding grace in your precious word. Thank you for this dear man, Paul, and how you used him and how he suffered and how he persevered and what he teaches us. Thank you for his life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you see where we pick up next time.